the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and south Cambridgeshire. This is the Cambridge Film Show, the show that's going to be fast because we've got a lot of films to get through today, but you'll have to stay with us till one o'clock uh, to find out if we're going to be furious. This is a packed show today. We have got reviews, among others, of Fast 10, the latest, I think the 11th film in the Fast and Furious franchise, <laughs> confusingly, uh, of uh, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, of Bo is Afraid, The Little Mermaid, White Men Can't Jump, and a roundup of what else we've been watching as a collective of film fans and critics over the past couple of weeks. Uh, joining me in the studio today, in no particular order, are Simon West. Hello. Uh, our Nicholas Mingy's Kitchen. Hello. Uh, our Matthew Taylor. Hello. Our Vicky Eyre. Hello. And Henry Jordan. Hello. Uh, and I'm just pleased I've got off to the start of the show by remembering all of their names. <laughs> this uh, yeah, is the usual organised chaos, or in my case the disorganised chaos, of getting through films. Uh, but do stay with us and we'll try to guide you through what's good to watch in our Cambridge cinemas and also to watch online. We're going to start off today with Fast and Furious 10, as I'm going to call it, because I think it's just easier than the Fast X title that the studio seemed to have wanted to gone with. Um, if you're not quite sure what this is about, let me give you a reminder. First of all, let's hear a clip from the film and this is uh, Vin Diesel as Dominic Toretto trying to get some help for Letty who has been imprisoned uh, from a new face to the franchise Brie Larson Letty Letty's in a black site prison off of every map then get her out nobody can nobody would Dom I'm so sorry but what you're asking me to do is impossible nothing's impossible Indeed, breaking the laws of physics not impossible if you have faith, but more on that in a moment. Let's hear from the star of the franchise, Vin Diesel himself. We've done a lot of daring things in this franchise, and if there was ever a moment to be this daring, we hope that we've earned it after 23 years. In order to end the movie with a cliffhanger of that magnitude, you have to know that your audience believes in you. You have to know that you've earned its trust with that audience. To truly tell a finale, we know we needed more than just the length of one movie. We knew that it would call for our film to be broken into multiple pieces. I'm not even sure we know how many pieces this is officially being broken into at this point, but yes, do not go expecting uh, any kind of resolution to this film. Uh, what you will expect then is more of Jason Momoa, who joins the franchise as Dante Reyes, and he enjoyed meeting up with the rest of the cast. Michelle, I, I met in uh, Italy. That was awesome. Uh, I met her before, but she was super welcoming. Charlize was everything I wanted her to be. She's a queen. She's professional. She's unbelievably talented. She's okay looking, you know what I mean? Like things like that. But uh, aside from that, I'm like, wonderful first day experience. I was so excited to meet Ludacris. I was doing scenes where I'm blowing Ludacris up and I'm listening to his music. And uh, But I love Luda. Now, uh, Vicky, I'm going to come to you first because you are only here for this film today. You're dashing off to a, uh, another engagement, uh, but you wanted to join us as our, our resident Fast and Furious fan. <laughs> so uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to come to you first and just start by asking what you made of this one. Well, um, I wasn't the biggest fan of Nine, um, but I, I thought I'd go out with this. I saw it in the IMAX um, in local to Cambridge, and I loved it. <laughs> I really did. It really brought me back into the franchise. Um, 
I think uh, it follows the same kind of, you know, um, all the groups kind of separate throughout the film. There's different storylines, but definitely uh, the kind they, they did it with a lot more pizzazz as a word. Um, there was a lot more energy to all the characters. Um, the the characters were really having a lot of fun in this, and like Jason Momoa was such an added light of a dark character. He was just hilarious, but also the worst human being I've seen on screen in a while, and just. It just really brought like the kind of fun energy apart from just, you know, a lot of crashes and a lot of amazing stunts. It was like the characters get to play themselves a little bit more, like back to the middle of the franchise around about five and six. And, you know, I get to see all my favorites on screen because no one ever dies in this franchise. <laughs> They're all back. And uh, I like that cliffhanger. Generally, I hadn't read anything um, before I went into it. I wanted to be a surprise. And it, that really did surprise me. <laughs> I didn't expect that tail end. And when I came out of it, I feel like I've sat through about like a 10 show series but like in the best way possible <laughs> I, I, I should say at this point if I actually managed to put my microphone up uh, that uh, without giving anything away the screening I saw it at everyone else in the audience left the moment the credit started I don't know if this was a subjective judgment on the quality of the film but there is a mid-credit sequence which nobody except me stayed for um, we're not going to tell you what it is but for goodness sake, stay in the cinema until you have seen at least one extra sequence. Unless, of course, you absolutely hated the film, in which case you might be out by half-time. Who knows? Uh, Simon, this is a franchise which has been rumbling on for just over 20 years now. Have you been on board with it since the beginning? Uh, for most of it, yes. Um, I mean, 5 to 8 was some of the peak cinema you can get, and it's absolutely fantastic on top of the franchises. I remember how much we raved on about them. And then 9 took a major nosedive in quality. This is back. It's getting back there. It wouldn't be all away. Um, there's a lot of flabby pieces. There's ten films gone. They have way too many characters. They want to put them all in the film, and they do not know what to do with them. Um, you have people going on on weird mini quests by themselves just to introduce a character to set up for the next film because they don't even get any resolution on this film, um, which is a shame because a little bit tighter, sacrifice some of the characters... And, you know, it can get on top again because you've got way too many. However, some of the action scenes were absolutely fantastic, great car chases, and we just want more John Cena and Jason Momoa in films because they absolutely stole it. Uh, Nick, I'll come to you next. Uh, I mean, does this deliver the action beats that a film like this should do to your money? I think, yes, it does. The... Um the action sequences are fantastic. I mean, the 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 rip along at a right old pace. In terms of the characters, I completely agree. I, I'm not totally invested in the uh, series of films. I've seen about half of them. I got lost with some of the characterisation. I didn't quite know who was who all the time. Um, the dialogue is fantastic, though. There are some great lines in it, like the fallout will be um, existential, and where are you off to? I'm going to dig some graves, and things of that nature. It's just brilliant. Um, but Jason Momoa, for me, made the film. He channeled a sort of camp Mickey Rourke, which I thought was fantastic. Um, as a, someone who's an occasional viewer of these films, I enjoyed it. It did give, deliver on the action front with my, for money. I saw it with my 10-year-old son, and uh, I asked him what he thought at the end, and he said 6 out of 10 on IMDb, so I thought that'll do, and he said it was absolutely bonkers. So yeah. that'll do for me. Uh, well, we seem reasonably enthusiastic so far. Matthew, can I come to you and ask you, we've mentioned Jason Momoa a little bit, but also the other big addition to the franchise this time is Brie Larson, uh, as uh, the daughter of Mr Nobody. Uh, is she uh, a bit of a nobody in the film, or does she get to make an impression as well? Yeah, I think I'm going to be the dissenting voice on this one. 
Uh, just to answer your question directly, I didn't think Brie Larson really added much. She was just kind of there for me. It, it did seem a bit odd to me that Vin Diesel's character goes on about family, but he didn't seem to want to make a movie with his friends in the kind of Adam Sandler way. Because after the Rome mission, where they essentially play Rocket League in the streets of Rome, which, which I thought was brilliant and, and, you know, peak fast, from then it all just splintered and, and Vin Diesel's off on his own little quest with two women who, if you added their ages together, probably still wouldn't add up to his. And I just thought, why, why don't you want to spend time with the family that you keep going on about? Uh, Jason Momoa, we've mentioned him. He, he was good. I, I was wondering whether he was his sort of camp characterization was a reaction to the sort of hyper-masculine, fast villain archetype where they all the actors are so masculine that they have to have it written into their contracts that they have to give as good as they get. And you imagine someone on set counting how many punches everyone takes to make sure everyone looks hard enough. But when Jason Momoa actually gets to fight Vin Diesel, it's pretty one-sided, so that seemed to be kind of undermining that. Uh, my line for Fast X is it's sort of a reverse Batman. You either die a villain or live long enough to see yourself become the hero. And I feel like they have <laughs> undermined themselves a bit with so many people coming back from the dead. I mean, there's one dramatic sacrifice where I just thought, well, this has got no heft because you just don't believe that this person is going to stay dead at all. Um, it, it's, it is fun for the first half hour, but then I thought really, really lost its way. So we have one dissension. Uh, Henry, we're going to come to you and see if you're going to be uh, on, on which side you are falling in our almost fast and furious sized cast we've got in the studio today. Oh, no, I am, uh, I am, on the rare opportunity, I'm not with Matt. I love this. I mean, I'm kind of on board with all the fast films. I haven't enjoyed F9, you know? Sue me. I like magnets. <laughs> and, yeah, I just got exactly what I wanted. And I think that is the thing with Fast and Furious at this point. You know if you're in or you're not. If you look at the trailer and you go, well, that, I mean, that just wouldn't happen, <laughs> then no, don't watch the film. You're not going to like it. But if you're here to see not just men who look like doors, but men who look like they've eaten, men who look like doors, <laughs> fight and, like, growl at each other and be macho and have, like, 200 guns pointed at each other before they do a, like, big street race and all, like, you know, make cool noises at each other, then that's what this film is for. I agree that there's a kind of, you know, looseness in leaving it on a cliffhanger and having it feel like there's so many strings that are untied, because I think what the previous films have all done well is kind of felt like their own little contained things where, you know, wraps up at the end, we all have a barbecue, cheers with a, you know, a name brand beer, and then everyone kind of goes off into the sunset. This is kind of like, this is the Avengers Infinity War of the Fast and Furious mythology. And I feel like that's a very deliberate move from Vin Diesel, who really is kind of crafting these films into their own special legend. <laughs> I mean, you make the allusion there to Avengers Infinity War and, and cramming everything in. Uh, Vicky is our, is our, our resident uh, biggest fan, I think, of this here. Um, they've almost inverted the structure here because we start with the barbecue almost at the beginning. Yes. Um, but we are, we are trying to bring in elements not only of the cast of the whole series but also of what has made the whole series because we're back to street racing and gyrating mm. ladies as well as to, uh, to was, all the heist elements. I was elements. so happy to see it. Honestly, <laughs> when, as soon as the, like, they landed in Brazil and the music dropped in the street, I got goosebumps. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh my God, it's back to too fast and too furious. <laughs> I was like, it's bad, and that has a great kind of counterpart cast, and you know, he has like new additions. Obviously, new characters mean a lot less screen time for other people. But I was just so excited it was back to its origins that I just couldn't contain myself. 
Uh, I'm going to throw a couple of questions out to everyone on this. Uh, first of all, I mean, there are uh, there's a massive cast here, and uh, you, certain people just pop up for the sake of it. Jordana Brewster is one that springs to mind, who's, who's just in at the very beginning at the barbecue, I think, and, and not seen again, uh, because, of course, she has that tie to, to um, Paul Walker's character, Brian, who uh, I think has respectfully not been brought back by CGI again. Mm-hmm. Now, we can, I think we can safely say, but he is uh, in the beginning of the film in flashback. Uh, the, the biggest challenge for me, I think, was the, the quartet of uh, Tyrese Gibson, uh, um, Ludacris, uh, Natalie Emmanuel, and Sung Kang, uh, who get their own plot line together. Um, di- was that the point for anyone else, where it felt we had too many plots and this is the unnecessary bit, this is the one that could really have been cut? That was the bit I was referring to earlier when I was saying there's too many characters that they don't know what to do with. They send out four of the characters just to find a fifth character. <laughs> Um, all the way to London, and probably spoiling a bit of a cameo here, but it's a bit surprised when we went all the way to London to meet Pete Davidson <laughs> as another famous name cameo, and you're just like, you don't know what to do. You sent him into space in the last film, you, you know, it's like, they were in the first couple of films, and that's the only reason they're still around apart from Han um, Han's the only one that thinks yeah actually you deserve to still be there the rest of it was just pure filler I completely disagree I think they, <laughs> they are my absolute comedic relief and I know that um, you know Tyrese Gibson or his character Rome tries hard but without him and Ludacris sometimes I like I lose the energy and they like bring it back for me you know um, Natalia um, who plays Ramsey and like uh, and Han they have like a good like combination of like the quiet characters that like you know pull these incredible fight scenes i thought like the different story points was maybe michelle rodriguez and charlize theron in that prison i thought that was that end up in you know a different climate i thought this is very unneeded part of the series i wanted to know what was happening in london because we got you know jason statham was back and i just yeah there is needed more time like more time with these characters but there's too many of them now, and they're all too well-paid that but, it just won't happen. Yeah, but dare I say, he's the biggest character who seems out of place is actually Vin Diesel. Mm. He's the only person who still takes his film seriously, and, it, you know, all about family and faith and everything else, where everyone else is just having an absolute wail of the time. Mm. And he's just almost like in a different film. It's like he's not in on his own joke yet, which everybody else is just laughing at. But I think we need that. Like, as soon as Vin Diesel, you know, would crack on and be like, ha, gotcha, it was a joke, they lose the specialness. Mm. It's that self-seriousness that makes Fast and Furious such a treat every single time. I, I had a, I had a, a point where, I, in the, the Rome sequence, I'd made a note to say, has this peaked too soon, like Michael Bolton's hair? It was a, it was a reference that I made just to remind myself. And then, because it seemed to dip afterwards with all these storylines going everywhere, I didn't really entirely follow because I'm not so invested in the franchise. But then I thought it brought it back very well at the end um, with an incredible action sequence that didn't peak too early. So... Well, one one person that I don't think has got enough praise is Charlize Theron because I felt she was quite wasted in Fast 8 and Fast 9 because she's actually probably one of the best action stars in the franchise but didn't really get to do much in the previous two where she gets two uh, really good fight scenes in this. Uh, so making use of their assets in a way they haven't in previous films in the franchise. I was going to say, even with the fight sequence, I almost thought she didn't deserve it because I hadn't seen her enough to feel the hatred towards her to deserve that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I got a bit yeah. of that with not yeah. being totally invested. In I was like, why do these two hate each other so, so much? much. <laughs> yeah, I had a real moment where I had to go, oh, John Cena is Vin Diesel's 
brother. That was the last one, wasn't it? <laughs> is it brother or cousin? Yeah, little what? brother, if you can believe it. Yes. Yeah. What? Whatever. I mean, there's a certain amount of even familial relationships that you have to just let wash over you. Uh, we do need to move on at some point, because otherwise this will be the Fast and Furious special, and I know most of you would love that. But the one thing I have to ask is that old uh, cliche, which I don't think was ever said in Star Trek, but the Scotty line: "You can't change the laws of physics, um, and not unless you watch a Fast and Furious." film uh the, the willing suspension of disbelief for me doesn't go as far as watching a round bomb roll down the streets of rome for longer than it took that plane to go down the runway one of the previous films i mean you know does it get a bit too much at any point it does i mean again it's the modern it's too much cgi i think they've tipped over the mark in this film where the the Rome fight felt real, the chase, but mm. a lot of the other ones, especially near the end, when he drops his car out of the back of the plane, lands on two of the cars, and then just drives off like nothing happened, yeah. you are getting to the point of CG. Um, a lot of the f- original Fast films were great because of the choreographed stunt scenes and the action sequences, and now I'm just kind of sitting there and goes, it doesn't matter, it's not real. But the level of physics abuse was actually significantly lower than in Fast 9. I mean, once you've yeah. driven a car to space, crash into a satellite, and then hitchhiked home with some Russians, yeah. anything you do after that is a step yeah. down. There was a moment in it when I thought, this is reminding me of Sharknado and, uh, and, and, and the kind of ludicrous nature of some of that. And I, I did also think I, I made probably an unfair comparison to, to the latest sort of Mission Impossible possible films and I was finding myself... I did enjoy it. I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it. I did. But I think I, you know prefer the Mission Impossible, breaking the laws of physics way of doing things. Well, for those waiting for that, that of course will be in cinemas in July, new trailer just recently released, but for those who are happy to get their ludicrous, ludicrous hit, then you can head to the View or the Light cinemas at the moment. It's about 2 hours 20 minutes, uh, and I believe it's a rating 12A, that is Fast 10, the 11th film in the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, at this point we're going to give a bid goodbye to Vicky during the next trailer, which I'll play very shortly, uh, so we don't make too many squeaky chair noises getting her out of the studio. Uh, but, uh, to remind you that still to come on the show today, we we have reviews of Bo is Afraid, The Little Mermaid, White Men Can't Jump, and a roundup of what else is showing in Cambridge Cinemas and online at the moment. But next to an adaptation of a classic Judy Bloom novel from 1970. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. The blood is released through the vagina. Please, do this one thing for me. Let me just be normal and regular like everybody else. Just please, 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 please. What I feel, I can't say. I've decided I want you to join my secret club. If you want to be in the club, then you have to wear a bra. Oh. Do you, you think you need one? We must! We must! We must increase our cost! So this is an adaptation of the Judy Bloom from the 1970s, which I know is a very beloved book by so many people, uh, and uh, I'm always in the cinema watching films, so I haven't read it, but we'll find out as we go through our reviewers who actually has managed to both read the book and watch the film. It stars Abby Ryder Forston as Margaret, who is 11 and just approaching that cusp of womanhood and all the changes that go with it. Uh, she's also dealing with the issues around 
the, the challenges between her mother, Rachel McAdams, being a Christian, and father, Benny Safdie, being a Jew, and um, grandmother, Kathy Bates, also uh, taking a, a very firm stance on, on which side she would like uh, Margaret to pick. And a school project is what requires Margaret to delve further into her religious backgrounds and possibilities, at the same time dealing with the challenges of impending womanhood. Uh, now, as our only woman has left the studio, uh, this is going to be the perspective of five men on a classic uh, girls' coming-of-age novel. Uh, it's what you pay for, frankly, when you listen to us. Uh, and I'm going to start with Henry this time and go the other way around, uh, just because it's easier for me to keep track of people in the studio. Uh, Henry, have you read the book, and uh, what did you make of the film? Uh, no, so I hadn't read the book. Um, it's one of those ones that's kind of, you know, floated around like the whole, are you there, God? It's a kind of piece of iconography that's become part of our culture. So I was kind of interested to see, like, all right, let's see a kind of a take on the fil- on the book in film then. And I just thought it was wonderful. Um, I think this film's kind of, I don't know, maybe struggling a little bit with its identity because, you know, it is a film very squarely about... a like a young girl's coming of age story and I think that there's a small worry for some audience maybe having of like oh but you know this is this is clearly for, for teenage girls this isn't for me blah, blah, blah. just absolute nonsense like this is a coming of age story that is told so well and so precisely that it becomes completely universal um, Abby Ryder Fortson is brilliant as Margaret I've never seen her in anything else and she holds her own against two like really strong actresses who've been leading films for decades and yeah i think at this point kelly freeman craig this is only her second film but second like knock out the park for coming of age stories i'm just yeah so so impressed and so charmed by this uh, Matthew, had you seen at the age of 17 which was kelly freeman craig's uh, previous film with Hobie Steinfeld and woody harrelson I have, but then I couldn't remember much about it other than that I liked it. So I went into this thinking, oh, I quite like the previous one, even though I can't remember much. I imagine I'll quite like this. I felt like the title's quite whimsical sounding, so I wasn't ready for it to be as real and grounded as it turned out to be. I thought it was going to be a lot funnier, but it, it actually made me think quite a lot about you know my own experiences with religion growing up and how... Uh, difficult it can be to reconcile deeply held beliefs, especially when people hold different ones and you're not sure what to think. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I did think it's been done better recently in the movie 8th Grade, uh, if you've seen that one, uh, which does kind of the same sort of thing, but with modern technology as well. I wonder if this would be improved by updating the setting and putting more modern kind of challenges that she'd face but yeah absolutely brilliant i was struggling to think when i've seen such discussion of periods in films before and i think the only time was maybe that sketch in movie 43 where (laughs) chloe grace moretz has her period on the couch and all the men around start freaking out and being useless so yeah i think if if you're yeah anyone should see this but even if you're not personally affected by these issues you will find a lot to be engaged with I was personally affected by worrying quite where you were going with that and uh, just had the Ofcom guidelines in the back of my head as we navigated through that uh, point. Uh, Nick, if I can uh, uh, come to you. I, uh, quite often, uh, coming-of-age films can get into quite serious territory and, and become quite heavy. Um, did this have a, more of a lightness of touch for you or did it actually get quite heavy at certain points as well? No, it had a lightness of touch and I agree. Uh, I agree it's, um, it has that universal quality that uh, Henry was talking about. I am the father of a 12-year-old girl, so this to me was um, a fascinating insight uh, into what's uh, probably coming my way very soon. And um, 
I wonder if this film would have been made 10 or even 20 years ago because it does discuss some of the issues that you've already mentioned and uh, other things of, of, of a young lady coming of age. And I, find, I found it utterly charming and very heartwarming and very life-affirming. I do agree. It's an interesting point about... it. it I mean, it's 50 years old, this book, and it, it is set in 1970, and it's very much a period piece in that respect. By the way, the sets and uh, the, the backgrounds, it's, it's, the attention to detail is fantastic for the era. It's a period piece. But I... Um, you know, I think they needed to make... This is such an iconic book for so many people and so many women over, you know, 50 years that I think they, the, the film deserved to be made. Um, I don't think they could have made it. Uh, but Judy Bloom's banned in um, certain states in America, some of her books. So I think the fact that it's been made should be celebrated. And I'm so delighted that it's a life-affirming, joyful film. But I absolutely agree, it's universal. Um, I, I wouldn't have gone, oh, I must go and see that film. Um... I'm so pleased I did. I've just been slightly distracted by looking at the cast list and discovered that one of the actresses is called Kate McLuggage. It's uh, <laughs> uh, playing Mrs Wheeler. Uh, which brings me nicely, uh, Simon, into talking about the cast. Were there any, any particular standouts for you in the performances here? Yeah, um, ignoring the child cast, because um, we've already talked about how great uh, Abby Ryder Forster was and the rest of it, um, I really loved the performances by Rachel McAdams and Benny Safdie as her father. Uh, Rachel McAdams as well, because they don't just purely concentrate on Margaret's coming of age, but also um, um, Rachel McAdams' characters trying to find a new career, moving to the suburbs, one of the daughters going out with her friends and being fearful of, of that, and also dealing with her own uh, parents' um, um, disenfranchisement with her parents and also with her mother-in-law. Um, I thought they were all fantastic. I mean, Kathy Bates as well as a grandmother is just so loving um, and wonderful and full of spark and life. It really did ground the entire character and the family um, together for this film. And I think it also provided a lot of entertainment and understanding for those of us who, who wouldn't necessarily relate to the young teenage girls coming mm. up. Um, I think I was the only one here I did ask. I remember actually reading this book in the 80s because um, Judy Blue, you know, very popular at the time. And although it's not quite as far back as the 70s, I thought they're so similar. I still had so many nostalgic hits from this film. It did feel wonderful. It did feel grounded before the 90s, before all the mm. um, technology. I don't think it would necessarily be... It would have been a completely different story. Like I said, you mentioned 8th grade. That was fantastic dealing with technology. This would have been a different story and would have been distracting. Mm. Um, so, you know, whether a young child bringing up, going through, you know, these changes and want to watch something, you know, see something quite accurate, um, or you're a parent or an adult, someone else who just wants to go back, is nostalgia here, or go it through the family, I think this has something for everybody. Yeah, I, mean, I think following on that point, you know, I said none of us here are girls, uh, but I grew up in a house uh, with a sister, a mother and a grandmother, that was my childhood experience, uh, and... Uh, that that was for me seeing a, a, a sister going through uh, that same coming of age time as Margaret is going through, a mother going through the menopause, and a grandmother edging towards senility. So you get all of those life experiences. Uh, so with the the combination of the three generations of women in this film, is it something that people can see themselves in at whatever stage in life they are? Yeah, I think absolutely. And if you know, it's like you said, Mark. It's the kind of thing where even if you don't necessarily see yourself reflected in that central triptych, you're going to see like the people that you love inside there who are kind of being, you know, shaped by these changes in their world. Um, yeah, I don't know. There is just so much to love, and I 
you know, I wish I'd mentioned it earlier, Rachel McAdams really is just sensational. There's a moment at the end when she kind of sits down with her daughter and they have, like, there's just one line between the two of them and it's just gently, like, devastating. Um, I'm going to pause briefly at this point because I believe Mr Ian Dayborn has locked himself out of the uh, studio, so well, one of us is going to have to go and let him in. Um, I'm glad we've been able to bring that to the whole of Cambridge, frankly. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thanks to Ian for the previous uh, hour of the show and however he's managed to lock himself out. There we go, he's back in now. Uh, yeah, it's not just the film chat here, you get the whole experience of what it's like to be in a radio studio, uh, particularly if you've forgotten your key or your key fob. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think he was probably going to the toilet. There we go. That's the full Ian Dayborn experience we've had uh, here on the show. Just briefly as we wrap this one up, uh, we've mentioned you know, a few other coming-of-age films. Do we think this is going to stand the test of time in that pantheon of great coming-of-age films? I think Empire did a ranking recently of these and actually put this film 10th, bearing in mind it's only just out. That, while I loved this film, felt maybe a little high to me for a film that's only just been released. I'm slightly worried it's going to be overlooked, um, just because enough not enough people are going to see it in the 70s. Um, it hasn't got the humour. It's not like Mean Girls, which, again, Rachel McAdams going from one of the girls to the mother is a little bit jarring. Um, so, I mean, you've got 8th grade, you've got, like I said, Edge of 17, you've got a lot of great films in that, in that you know, the Pantheon. Um, Quality-wise, it's up there. Whether it actually crossed over the culture, I don't know. There's not that sort of standout, memeable moment, really. There's there's not there's no particularly iconic standout bits. It's just generally high quality throughout, but without that kind of peak shareable moment, perhaps that you'd need. Which makes me think it will stand the test of time because it'll be a, a sort of forgotten gem that people will rediscover in a few years and goes, oh yeah, that was really good. Let's put it high up the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, whatever name the Cambridge Film Show is going under in 2033, I hope the uh, reviewers then will maybe come back to it and see if it has stood the test of time. For now, you can catch it in all three Cambridge cinemas, uh, and it is uh, a rating, again, 12, 8... Oh, no, it's a PG. PG. It's PG, and it's one hour, 46 minutes. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, a general recommendation from us for this one to, uh, to go and give it some of your time. Still to come on the show today, Bo is Afraid, The Little Mermaid, and White Men Can't Jump. Oh, and I have just managed to somehow uh, cancel the adverts. So what we're going to do now is, while I get those back, we're going to review The Little Mermaid, hear a little bit of that, and I'm going to get sacked for being a terrible uh, engineer on the programme. <laughs> you broke the rules. You went to the above world. A man was drowning. I had to save him. This obsession with humans has to stop. I just want to know more about them. Ariel, don't! Poor child. I can help you. You can't live in that world unless you become a human yourself. Is that even possible? (laughs) That's what I live for. (laughs) Something about you seems different. I can't quite figure it out. She got legs, you idiot. Yes, this is uh, David Diggs we heard just at the end of the trailer there doing the classic Sebastian accent, uh, one of the, the many things I think trying to be replicated from the original film. Now, I believe Henry and Simon have seen this one. Uh, we're going to cut uh, straight into this because it is a remake of the uh, Disney film, which really relaunched Disney animation back in the late 80s and, and early 90s. We had then uh, Aladdin and The Lion King, a film which came on, but The Little Mermaid was, I think, where it all started again, particularly thanks to the songs of uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. And we got some music from Lin-Manuel Miranda to add to this. 
And to add to the length this time, my first bugbear, which we'll maybe come to in a moment, is how this is two hours, ten minutes, when the original was an hour and a half, and it's been a common fault of these Disney adaptations. Uh, Simon, was that, was that for you a fault, and was it the only one? Oh, no, much more. Many, 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 many faults. Um, I've never seen the original, so I went into this completely blank, and when I came out of it, the first thing I said is, I have questions. <laughs> you know, like the first one, they introduce Flounder, the fish friend, and then Scuttle comes down with the bird and eats all the other fish, and then they don't comment on it, and it just seemed a bit weird. And also, how to have just great, um, you know, the the acoustics under the sea and why did she start singing after she's lost her voice well, it's just so much this film didn't make any sense to me um, the first half of it was also so dark and by dark I don't mean mean and it's all the night scenes and underwater and they had a nice little water effect where instead of like bubbles and things going up they just kind of slightly blurred people's faces in and out so it's like hard to focus and it just sent me to sleep for most of it um, the songs picked up but it did not grab me um, I've seen all the Disney live-action remakes, and I've actually been quite positive on all of them, a lot more than a lot of other people. I saw a, a memory popped up the other day saying, Aladdin, how much I actually really enjoyed and loved that one. Um, but this one just completely blew me by, and I just don't get it. I don't know the original, and this did absolutely nothing. Fair enough. I think, uh, Simon, when you said you had questions, Henry, your question was, uh, are you asking for a refund? Uh, Henry, <laughs> Henry, were you asking for a refund after this one? Oh, God, I was, yeah, desperate, hoping, just crawling around the walls. I, yeah, have different questions to Simon. In a world where we have mermaids and magic, I can, I can look past, you know, a bird and a fish being friends. M my question was, why? <laughs> like you say, there's, there's 50 minutes added to this film from the original. And I, also like Simon, actually haven't seen the original. I've absorbed kind of scenes and songs through like the kind of pop culture membrane, but like I'm not that familiar with the original one. It's not one of those like sacred texts for me in the same way that The Lion King is. And so, yeah, coming into it fairly like, all right, I'm gonna open canvas, let's see what we can do, was just, I was miserable. I will say one of the things that they get right is that with a lot of these remakes, they've cast like actors who are kind of, who are Better actors than they are singers, which leads to the songs kind of falling flat. Um, Halle Bailey is a really good singer. Like, you can tell that she kind of has a home. I know she's like a pop singer, but she would probably have a home somewhere on like Broadway. She can sing really well. And her acting is fine. And so the songs will kind of push people through. And this one's been getting moderately good reviews. And I think the singing is probably a big thing for it. But... If you want more from a film than someone who can sing a song you've already heard before well, then you are not going to have a good time here. I, yeah, I was miserable. Like, if you have kids, take them to see literally anything else. If they are, like, still quite young children, take them to see Are You There, God? If they're, like, kind of growing into teenagedom, take them to see Fast X. Hell, if they are 15 or older, take them to see Bo is Afraid. Just please... Please don't take them to see this. I think we're going to have to move on because I'm not sure Henry's blood pressure can take any more <laughs> analysis of this particular film. I, I would say I enjoyed some of the, the song moments, in particular the chance of, of Davy Diggs to do a bit more Hamilton-style rapping as, as Lin-Manuel Miranda had him doing previously. And I'm also quite pleased that I managed to say Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, which I always <laughs> struggle to say on the radio. Um, 
Let, very quickly, Jonah Howard King, who is Eric, who is the, the, the male lead in this, did he make any kind of impression at all? I don't... Th- I think they're all fine. I thought all the acting in here was fine, but fine is about as bad as you can get. I must admit, I felt this show is very, very 90s orientated, especially some of the films got a lot to. And like I said, inserting a rap song into the film was about as 90s as you could get. You could tell Lynn manuel was in on that. Um... Yeah, the voice was good. I found myself humming Under the Sea on the way back, but that's probably because it's just a well-known song anyway. Um, And I'm playing Disney Dreamlight, which is a great Disney game, and it's got all those songs in it. But apart from that, um, I mean, Melissa McCarthy wasn't as long as usual, looking like Grot Bags, if anyone else remembers that. Oh, now there's there's an 80s reference I can get on board with. Um, But... you know, the acting is fine. The acting is not the fault with this one. Ali Bailey did a good job. Eric was fine. He seemed likeable. They would be fine in any other film. It's just, this just sent me to sleep. Well, the original is on Disney+, Plus. just yeah. saying. Yeah. I think that's where we are with that one. I'm going to have a second attempt at playing the adverts now, and then we'll be back with some more reviews. Cambridge 105 Radio. In 1960s Cambridge, the Rolling Stones performed at the Rex Ballroom, Chris Farlow was on stage at the Alley Club, and Helen Shapiro played live at the Regal Cinema. On Sunday mornings, John Gannon takes you back to the swinging 60s with music and memories. John Gannon's 60s scene, Sunday mornings at 8 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. Impulse Fest is back for its second year on Saturday, 8th of July at Lark Hall Farm near Cambridge. Fats and Small will be headlining the day and flying in from the beautiful island of Ibiza. One of Cafe Mambo's resident DJs, Dr. Feelgood. All this along with the Impulse Radio DJs who will be playing all the big dance tunes throughout the day. Tickets are on sale now at impulsefest.co.uk. Impulse Fest, where the The Beat Goes Live. Here at Cambridge 105 Radio, we're super excited to be the media partners for this year's Velvet Food and Drink Awards. There are eight categories, including Farm Shop or Deli of the Year, Best Street Food and Best Restaurant. To see the full list and to nominate your favourites, search Velvet Food and Drink Awards. Nominations close on Wednesday, May 31st. And join us live on June 30th for the Gala Awards Show, hosted by our own Steffi Callister. Cambridge 105 Radio You are listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio, where every two weeks we dissect the latest releases at box office, blockbusters, and all the things which you should probably avoid as well. If you've missed the beginning of the show today, then we are definitely suggesting to catch Fast X, Are You There, God Is Me, Margaret, and to avoid, like the plague, The Little Mermaid. Uh, We still have a look at the big streaming release of the week, White Men Can't Jump to Come, uh, and a roundup of what else is out. Uh, But let's talk about Bo is Afraid now, because we're running a bit late on time, and because I forgot to put it in my playlist, let's uh, skip straight over the trailer um, and cut into this film, which is a three-hour epic, I'm going to use the words cautiously, uh, from Ari Aster, who brought us previously one of my favourite horror films of recent years, Hereditary, and also uh, Midsommar, which I thought was a slight dip in quality, uh, and which started to show some of his tendency to be unfettered in running time. We get to a minute short of three hours with... Uh, Bo is afraid here. Who would like to come in first and tell me whether they think that was justified? I'm going to go to Matthew uh, first. So, when I went to see this, uh, we got a trailer for the upcoming Take That movie, Greatest Days. (laughs) 
which is sort of lots of upbeat music and it's intercut with the cast and members of Take That saying, this is a feel-good movie, uh, good vibes only. I, I would say Bo is Afraid is the exact polar opposite of that. This is a feel-bad movie, bad vibes only. <laughs> it's like a, a three-hour anxiety nightmare, I think it's been described as, um, amongst other things. I actually quite enjoyed it. If you like sort of maybe the anxiety of uncut gems with the surrealism of maybe I'm thinking of ending things uh, on Netflix, then maybe you'll enjoy this. I'm not sure I could really recommend it to anyone because I think anyone who would like it probably already knows about it. And if you go into it having no idea, you're probably going to end up walking out long before it ends. But there's a lot to like here. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is brilliant. You never really know where it's going to go next. It's sort of like a sort the a nightmarish Dr Pepper advert where the question "What's the worst that could happen?" is always answered with something worse than you could possibly imagine. But um, yeah, it's quite an experience. Uh, I've heard words in discussion of this film online uh, such as Kafkaesque, Homeric, Oedipal. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels like there's the potential for an awful lot to be going on here. I personally felt there was too much going on here, even at three hours. Uh, Nick, what's your view on this one? I, I mean, it's, it is all of those things as you described as, and as a lot of other people have described and it's a three-hour panic attack as, as other people have described it. I, I'd agree with all of it. I would say... Um, I mean, the plot's rather... I'm not sure it's really important, but it starts off... It's a, it's a, it's a road trip, really, uh, to go and see his mother. Um, it's, it's, it is self-indulgent at three hours long. Um, I, Ari Aster's a, an accomplished filmmaker, so it is. if you're interested in cinema, I would recommend it. It's, um, and I wasn't the biggest fan of Hereditary. I thought that was quite well signposted, and I preferred Midsommar, actually. But, um, but this film, it... it I think it lost its way slightly in the in the final third, but it, I think that's almost Ariaster's point. He he second guesses you throughout the film. Just when you think you've got a handle on something, he throws a whopping great curveball, and you don't know quite where you are. There's so many directors and so many films I could reference in in there, and, and many people. If you Google online, will be the same from Lynch to. Brother, where art thou, weirdly? I kind of got... I channeled a bit of that. There's so many things and so many references. One... Two things I would say, though, that are less commonly said. I found it really funny, um, is the first thing. And the second thing is there are, there are some... I, I, I would probably deserve a second viewing, although oh, <laughs> if you want to go and see it again, you've got to invest in it. But there's a lot of visual stuff in there that I missed. There was a, a shot at the very beginning where, or when he's in his flat, of a uh, picture on the wall, which I, at the time, assumed it was his father, but frankly, I've no idea if it was or not. But it kind of hologrammed, it's blink and you miss it moment, but it hologrammed into a kind of uh, early 80s Bob Dylan. And I imagined for a moment that he thought his dad was Bob Dylan. And there were moments like that peppered throughout the film, many of which I'm sure I'd missed. But um, I, a lot has been said about it online, but those, I think that's um, not... People have said less about that online, but that's something I picked up from it, amongst many things. Yeah, you can if you go and read online uh, see a lot about how much detail Ari has to put into the background there's, a, there's an Irish Hawaiian ready meal I think at one point <laughs> yeah, that's right no, it, it, exactly. yes quite and I, no really funny quite entertaining uh, has Ari has to put too much attention in the small details and not worried about the bigger picture Simon no I don't think so I think he really does nail what he's trying to say, even if he doesn't know what it is he wants to say. Um, which now, that's sound, quite an achievement. It's yeah. a quite an achievement, but that's the kind of film this is. Um, I mean, 
I went into this not knowing anything about it, including a three-hour runtime, having loved Hereditary, loved Midsummer, where I came out of both of those films shocked, and I've not actually watched them more than once. This is a film I'm going to want to see more again and again and again, and several times. I mean, the thing I didn't expect was how funny it is. It's very dark humour, it's black humour, it's dealing with the worst in life through humour, but it is funny. Um, It is a three-hour anxiety attack where you always think, as you said, what is the worst going to happen? Because the main character is just so anxious about everything. And then what happens is actually even worse than you can imagine every single time, and it just escalates through the end of the film. And to keep it up for three hours is amazing. I think it was a little bit flabby. Mm. There was a wonderful section in the um, last third where they go into a forest and plays and have a lovely, beautiful animation sequence. And that, on one half, I'm like that could have been cut for time easily but on the other half it was absolutely beautiful it was wonderful film making i don't know where else you're going to put it you can't take it out because it's just too good and that's kind of the quality of the entire film so it's long but you can't take any of it out so uh, uh henry to come to you joaquin phoenix uh, yeah fantastic career with so many great roles uh, but for me here Bo is afraid and that's all joaquin phoenix gets to do uh, is that being a little unfair? I think that's so unfair. Like, Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix, one of, I think, his greatest attributes as an actor is he really, like, really gives himself to the film and the filmmaker. He just kind of turns up and says, whatever you need from me, you have me completely. Like, whether that's you were never really here, or Joko, or, you know, the master, whatever it is he's doing, he's like, you mould me. And I think he really does let Ari Aster just push him wherever he wants. He becomes this this lost little boy, you know, short of walking around with a teddy bear. He is just a kind of nervous, anxious child. And oh, I, I cannot tell you how much I loved this film. <laughs> I just thought it was wonderful. And I think if you watch it and you meet someone else and they say, I love this film, because you will meet people who say, I hated this film. But if you meet someone else who says, I love this film, you're going to go, oh, I understand who you are. I know what's going on in your head suddenly. I think as well, the fact there is a character in this film introduced early on whose name is Birthday Boy Stabman. If that to you is not inherently funny, you can probably skip it. For me, I thought it was hysterical. Start to twisted, twisted finish. I mean, that's one of the things about this film is like, someone says you love this film, you're like, yes, I love it. Somebody says, I hate this film, you're like, yes, I totally understand. I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. It's not like other ones. They're like, no, no, it's a good film. I can't convince. You will know whether you like it or you hate it. And you can't argue. It is what it is. The, the moment that really stuck with me was when oh, Bo is forced to smoke some what's possibly marijuana, but might be something much more powerful and has just a, a horrendous this kind of dissociative drug episode that just made me quite uncomfortable just watching someone go through that and I was just thinking this is someone who really understands the dark places the human mind can go to and actually contrasting it with Fast X where there's a moment where (laughs) Han eats some space Mm -hmm. cakes and things just go a bit wibbly and then it's all fine nothing's fine in this Uh, yeah, I, and uh, I was just going to say two things, really. One is that I absolutely agree about the, the cent- that bit in the middle that you said was, where else could you put it? It was a beautiful bit of filmmaking where there's a sort of Oedipal kind of um, sequence, Greek tragedy. Um, it was just beautiful direction. It's sometimes, it is episodic. It doesn't always sort of gel together. Joaquin Phoenix, though, going back to him, his performance, he's in the whole film. It is three hours long, 
and he's in it all the time. And uh, it's a remarkable performance in that respect. And you sort of give credence to that. But um, there is a part of me, that, and I do love it. And I last time you and I were on, Simon, we watched After Sun. I really liked it. I think you did as well, Mark. You didn't. I mean, I still stand by that. But if anyone in here had said, I don't like this film, I'd have gone, fair enough. <laughs> I, I, so I totally agree with that. I, I think the, the comparison that came to my mind was probably the Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch uh, as being the most recent film, which is actually specifically in three episodes, which uh, are, are disconnected from each other. And this, to me, did feel like three disconnected episodes. I'd have almost been happier watching them in three goes, maybe as a, as a TV series, rather than trying to watch them all back to back. Maybe this was just my tolerance for Hacking Phoenix's uh, overacting, just getting a, a little bit much. Um, yeah, I, I get the sense from all of you though that you actually probably enjoyed it more than I did, and uh, you know, I think I think a cautiously recommending it is that fair to say? Uh, not yeah, not no even caution. cautiously. No, no caution. caution. Recommending. Go for it. If you don't already know this is for you, it's not for you. Mm. <laughs> right. I can't end it any better way than that. It's still showing at the Arts Picture House. Uh, just spare three hours of your time and uh, probably get a coffee before you go in. Uh, I didn't, and I did nod off very very slightly at the start of chapter two. Um, so I think I on that basis alone I will go back and revisit it at some point in the year before we do all those wonderful end of year lists uh, time is really getting away from us so I, what we're going to do is uh, hear a little bit of White Men Can't Jump very briefly uh, talk about it because I suspect it's not going to take us long and then round up what else we have seen this week Gang, it's win by two not here it's not hey they're letting yoga instructors in the gym now Ball. I just noticed you're not getting enough legs on a new shot. Are you dehydrated? 100 bucks, you can't make more shots. Let's just do 300. It's not my dad's money. We ain't never gonna get a reparation that way, bro. So I prefer Venmo or Zelle, but you seem like a Cash App guy, so. so I will confess at this point to have only seen the trailers for both the original and the uh, the new 2023 version. Of course, the original with Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. Uh, this remake with some other people. Uh, I'm going to put the cast <laughs> list on the screen now for uh, in the studio for those people who are actually trying to review this. Uh, I asked while the trailer was playing of my four reviewers here who's seen it, and they all put their hand up, and uh, who liked it, and I got two kinders. Uh, so I'm going to give you one sentence each, and I'm going to go from left to right. Henry, uh, your one sentence review of White Men Come Jump 2023. Uh, so as, you know, resident child, uh, I was too young for the first one, was not alive when it came out, so I haven't seen it. I have nothing to compare it to, and this is still a poor comparison. I hope Jack Harlow is happy. <laughs> well, I, um, so I was searching for this, typed WHI into Disney+, and Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson pop up. And I think, ooh, white men can't jump. But then I had to get all the way to ME of white men can't jump before Disney+, Plus was willing to admit that they had remade it. Uh, that tells you all you need to know, I think. They don't develop the character relationships as they do in the original, and so therefore you don't really invest in the characters in this film. I mean, there's a line in this film where they say, um, it's all about the hustling, and it's like, well, everybody knows that white men can play basketball now, which kind of ruins the entire point of the film and the hustling thing, um, which comes across so well in the original. Mm. So while we're trying to review the re remake... The original is still on Disney Plus as well, so watch that instead. And Disney Plus really wants you to watch the original. <laughs> Take their advice. The original is fantastic. Mm. I mean, the original really is good, but this is pointless. 
Well, there you go. Uh, a recommendation to go and watch the original White Man Can't Jump, <laughs> which I might take up at some point after the show. We have got about five and a half minutes to just summarise what else we've been watching uh, in the past couple of weeks. I will start off by saying that I yesterday caught Master Gardener, the new Paul Schrader film, and uh, it stars Sigourney Weaver and Joel Edgerton. And uh, also, I think the first time I've ever seen Esso uh, Morales in anything, remarkably, despite the fact he's had an incredible career, I seem to have passed him by, which is quite nice, because he's going to be in the new Mission Impossible film as the baddie. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a typical Paul Schrader film. If you've seen Paul Schrader before, you will not be surprised with what you get here. Uh, and so if you're a fan of Paul Schrader, it's worth catching. If you're not, uh, I think there are other better films out this week. Uh, I think uh, at least a couple of you have seen uh, uh, Sisu. Uh, um, so, no, uh, which is, in fact, just Simon. Uh, so, Simon, what can you tell us about Sisu? Oh, Sisu. Uh, a good old one-man army film set in World War Two, where a grizzled Finnish veteran... Um, finds some gold and tries to return it and comes across a group of Nazis who are doing scorched earth while trying to get out of Finland at the end of the war. Um, so he just slowly, one by one, kills all the Nazis, which it was an incredibly satisfying film to watch. <laughs> um, fantastic action, some good humour, real good prosthetic um, almost gore um, in a horror thing, but it's just more of a really good western almost no dialogue lots of pure action guy gets hunted down bad guys gets his revenge one by one almost like reverse stalker film um fantastic performance by the lead so grizzled action hero you want to see more actually you know i really enjoyed it came out feeling really good about it and had a you know great fire great time uh, most of the little bit of dialogue there is is english so although it is a finnish film it is nearly all in english and just action yes and uh quite a lot of swearing because when i came to try and get a bit of a trailer for this uh there was not enough that was not swearing <laughs> for me to actually put in the program but uh, a strong recommendation there from simon i will certainly try and catch that later in the week i think matthew and simon you've both seen hypnotic, hypnotic. yeah uh, I, mean, I we got to see hypnotic last night which the omens were quite bad for this because it, it kind of just got dropped out with no fanfare. But it's actually not bad. I, I think Simon put it best when he said the 90s called They Want Their Movie Back. Uh, this is a real throwback. It's just a sort of nice little sci-fi movie where you're not sure what's real and characters will look confused and slightly constipated as they try and figure out what the reality that they're seeing is. I enjoyed it. There's a few twists and turns. Some, some people wear nice red blazers. It's not bad. Check it out. I mean, I was going thinking of Scanners, Identity, um, Paycheck, nice little Philip K. Dick kind of films. These were the kind of films that Ben Affleck was making. The low-budget, slightly sci-fi, good story, interesting, can't do it. It's not necessarily fantastic, but it is fun, which was the thing. You know, it's, some of it is so cheesy, but I've not seen a film like this in the cinema for a long time. It keeps saying they need to do the mid-budget films, and not everything has to be Avengers. <laughs> and I went in, didn't know what I was getting, and I enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, yeah, that that is also possibly tempting me to catch this one. It's a good job I've got a couple of free evenings this week because I'm filling them up already. Uh, Nick, I think you also uh, seen a, a streamer uh, online, uh, which uh, goes back to a couple of beloved cartoon characters. Yeah, uh, uh, Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom. Uh, it's got a pretty. Um, it, it's not brilliant. Uh, it's had a lot of one-star reviews. Unfair. Two stars, four out of ten, maybe. It's for French film. 
that zips along. Uh, they have to um, go to China in this particular instance to um, stop the evil, you'll get this, dancing queen from uh, taking over China. And uh, it's... Uh, channels quite a lot of carry-on uh, in its horrible history's light without much of a, a horrible and a little bit of the history. Um, I will just say, though, uh, I, I mean, I smiled and I chuckled quite a few times because there's some, some funny jokes in it. Um, but um, oddly, the, the casting is not brilliant, but then strangely enough, Vincent Cassell and Marion Coutard both turn up in it uh, as uh, variously um, Caesar and Cleopatra. So um, worth uh, dipping in just for that. Right, we have about one minute, ten seconds left. I'm just going to go around the studio and ask each of you to tell me your one recommendation from this week, given all the films we talked about. Simon? Bo is Afraid. Nick? Bo is Afraid. Matt? Bo is Afraid. Henry? Uh, for those who love or hate their mother, Bo is Afraid. <laughs> uh, well, for me, uh, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was my film of the week, so uh, a, a slight bit of balance there. You'll probably all go and watch Fast X, but <laughs> we've, we've tried our best to avoid that circumstance. Whatever you do, don't watch The Little Mermaid unless you go to Disney Plus and watch the original. That's all we've got time for this week. We are here every two weeks, and in two weeks' time, our team of reviewers, uh, I think being led by uh, Ashley, will be back, uh, but, but one of us will be here leading the reviewers through Spider-Man Across the Spider. Universe, Elemental, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts and War Pony, among whatever else is showing out. Don't forget, if you've missed any part of the show, you can catch us on the podcast. Uh, we also get repeated at various points during the week, uh, and we're available on FMDAB uh, online and on your smart speaker every Saturday at 12. Thank you for your company today. I hope we've given you some help in what to see in the cinemas over the next couple of weeks, and do come back and join the Cambridge Film Show here on Cambridge 105 Radio every Saturday at 12. From all of us, goodbye. 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 The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.